Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to an instrumental recording of Give It Away, originally recorded by George Strait and co-written by Jamie Johnson, Bill Anderson, and our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Buddy Cannon. Best known as the award-winning producer for both Kenny Chesney and Willie Nelson, Cannon has written hit songs for a long list of artists, including Loretta Lynn, George Jones, Alabama, and Billy Ray Cyrus. He'll join us later in the show to talk about his amazing career. Part 1. Well, once again, we have an episode today that is brought to you by the fine folks at Pearl Snap Studios. Yeah, Justin and our friends over there. Good people. It's harder to say fine folks than you might think. Fine folks down there. (laughs) You know, the thing about Pearl Snap Studios, Paul, is uh, we're located in Los Angeles. We are. They are located in Nashville, Tennessee. Boy, you're you're really getting somewhere now. So I would obviously never be able to do a demo at Pearl Snap myself because I don't live in Nashville, Tennessee. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You can. You're telling me. I'm telling you. That I could do a demo. That thanks to the magic of the internet <laughs> and computers. It could be done. And also technology. And, and I, in it addition. It can be done. Yes. You can take a song that you've written and send it in in, in some kind of, you know, uh, crudely recorded format. Right. And Justin can turn that thing into a beautiful, pitchable serious you know commercial sounding recording and justin being a songwriter with with uh songwriting success with commercially released material himself knows what uh, he's doing he knows knows what it's supposed to sound like and uh we actually um are going to share a little bit a snippet of one of those demos that justin did for a songcraft listener named marcy each yep um marcy sent us this and uh it's a it's a great uh great example of just one of the many things that Justin can do. He is bound by no genre. Um, but here is uh, a quick example with Marcy's song, Drink It In. So there you go. We've been talking about Pearl Snap, and now we've given you an example of what they can do for you. Yeah. So if you've got a song uh, that you'd like to get demoed, maybe you've just got it down as a rough kind of guitar vocal, that's not a problem. You can send an MP3 to Justin, and uh, he will let you know all the details and how you can make it happen. And of course, if you tell them that Songcraft sent you, they'll give you the uh, the red carpet treatment. Yep. So go to pearlsnapstudios.com and check it out. Part two. 
Well, to kick off this episode, I wanted to talk about a musical experience that I had recently that was a bit different from the norm. Right. Um, I, I think of most of your musical experiences as a bit different from uh, the norm. Most of my life experiences are <laughs> a bit different from the norm. Um, but, you know, you and I get emails from time to time from publicists or whomever, uh, you know, suggesting that we interview someone for the show. Right. Um, and, you know, we, we can't always get to all of them. But there was one that really popped out to me. Um, and it actually wasn't even asking about being on the show. It was just sort of a press release. Um, about a neoclassical pianist named Ludovico Einaudi. Right. Um, this was not a name that I was familiar with, but I, I looked in, in the email and it said that he's the most streamed classical pianist in the world. Right. To the tune of like 2 billion streams. Jeez. <laughs> 2 billion wow. streams. That's a lot of streams. And I'm like, man, I've, I've got to see what this is about. That's, right. that's a lot of people and that's a lot of streams. And I'm, I'm a piano player myself and, and I thought I'll check it out. So I, I found this video called Elegy for the Arctic which I, I, I would you know, ask anybody to go check out. He's out there in the middle of a bunch of glaciers playing the piano. This, that sounds cold. It's, <laughs> well, it, it must be. Um, <laughs> and, and the music was... Not really, as cold as it used to be, though. <laughs> uh, <laughs> part of the problem, the, part of the reason for an elegy. Um, but it was just beautiful, haunting music. And uh, then I read more about his current project, which is called Seven Days Walking. And it was seven different projects he put out um, over the course of seven months to describe this walk that he kept taking through the Alps. And wow. <laughs> all of his experience, he then put them into melodies. Um, it's it's the kind of composition and the kind of creative experiment that I really think is somewhat lost right. in today's world. So my wife and I went um, to oh, see wow. this phenomenal composer. You've gone uptown. I have gone uptown completely. <laughs> and I have to tell you, first of all, just the experience of going to a concert like this. Right. Um, it was so human and, and what i mean by that is it, it felt like a triumph of the human spirit just the, the wow. way people sat and consumed art it felt like people connecting with sort of this the spiritual part of being human nobody mm. was filming it nobody was shouting or <laughs> clapping or you mean you know, the stomping. the, the uh, tuxedoed audience didn't have their phones out they uh, did not yeah there were right. no children um <laughs> children are great don't get me wrong um but but then the music itself, I mean, he, it was just him out there with a, a violinist and a cellist. Wow. And everyone was just transported and transfixed by it. Um, so neoclassical music is not my usual milieu. <laughs> to use a but now you're French using term. words like milieu <laughs> just because you went to one classical concert. <laughs> totally, totally. I, I ride a bike now. Um, is that why you're wearing that ascot and monocle today? Because I was going to ask. <laughs> That's part of it. It's also <laughs> National Mr. Peanut Day. But <laughs> I, I did want to point out and remind myself and remind our listeners that there's more music out there than we even think there is. Mm. And sometimes I get kind of burnt out on like discovering new things. Um, and when it comes to country or pop or rock or whatever, you can sort of feel like it's all thin. And then I realized there's this man who's making this beautiful transcendent music and it's being streamed 2 billion times. Yeah. And maybe I should jump on board. <laughs> right. It might be time. And it actually did kind of, it kind of changed my month and changed my outlook a little bit. So I felt really privileged to be able to go to that show. And, yeah. and I felt really moved by the music I heard. I would recommend uh, his music to anyone who would want to check it out. Yeah. Well, well thanks for inviting me. <laughs> yeah next time yeah 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 well anyway well i didn't invite you to the interview with buddy cannon so well you there know, we go we're, we're even we're, we're even this is uh the episode that we've got on tap for today 
is um, a conversation that was actually taped uh, a little while ago. This is one um, occasionally you or I are not able to be there when we're yeah. when we're doing an interview, and we try to kind of space those out so that uh, it's a rare thing that it's just one of us uh, doing it solo. So this is one that's actually been uh, kind of on the shelf for a while, just waiting for a right moment after we've had plenty where we've kind of shared the spotlight. Yep. Um, because you know, I don't want to, I don't want to steal the thunder stage me. Yeah, I get it. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, but buddy, of course, uh, phenomenal songwriter, producer, kind of a link to the classic era of country music, uh, up to the modern era, which is, is kind of an interesting time of transition that he has spanned. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I'm excited for you to hear the conversation since you weren't able to be there that day and, uh, and, and see what the great buddy cannon has to say. Did you guys talk about me? Um, very much so, but we cut that part out already before you got here today. So then I'll be uh, honest, I'm not that interested in. It. <laughs> well, you can go uh, console yourself with your new fancy friends at the Disney Concert <laughs> Hall. Fair enough. Part three. Though widely recognized as a respected Nashville record producer, Buddy Cannon initially made his mark in the music business as a songwriter. His first charting single came with Mel Tillis's recording of "I Believe in You," which reached number one on the Billboard Country Rankings. He went on to write several Vern Gosden hits, including the number one singles, Set Em Up Joe and I'm Still Crazy. George Strait took his I've Come to Expect It From You to number one, but his greatest success with Strait came in 2006 when Give It Away hit the top spot on the charts and went on to be named Song of the Year by both the Country Music Association and the Academy of Country Music. Additionally, Buddy's songs have been recorded by Hank Snow, Loretta Lynn, David Allen Coe, Billy Ray Cyrus, George Jones, Gene Watson, Alabama, Bill Anderson, Don Williams, Tracy Bird, and others. As a producer, he's worked on projects for Sammy Kershaw, Sarah Evans, Shelley Wright, Craig Morgan, John Michael Montgomery, Reba McIntyre, Joe Diffie, Joe Nichols, Jamie Johnson, Randy Travis, Lionel Richie, Eric Clapton, Rhonda Vincent, Dolly Parton, and Merle Haggard. He has produced most of Willie Nelson's recent albums and has produced every Kenny Chesney album since 1997. His work with Chesney includes nearly two dozen number one singles. Cannon has won a CMA and three ACM awards for his production work, including the ACM's Producer of the Year. Buddy, welcome to Songcraft. Thanks. Good to be part of the show. Yeah, it's great to have you. Now... I believe you were born in, in Lexington, Tennessee, which is maybe an hour and a half or so outside of Nashville. Um, when you were a kid growing up, what were some of the earliest musical influences that had an impact on you? Oh, gosh, I had, um, you know, I had music in my family. My mom was a musician, or is a musician. She's 92, and she still plays music. And uh, wow. I, have, um, uh, I had two uncles. One is still living, uh, uh, who played a little bit, and uh, another uncle uh, who uh, was a, was a really great musician. He played every stringed instrument, and uh, hmm. uh, they were really important. We just had music playing all the time, you know. Yeah. As yeah. far as what I was hearing on the radio uh, back then, you know, Hank Williams. I remember. I remember singing Hank Williams songs at the top of my voice out in the out in out in the yard. And uh, later in years, I I've talked to my some of the people who lived next, you know, down the street for, or down the road from us, and right. says they used to sit out on their porch and hear me singing across the holler, you know. <laughs> but, um, right. 
Yeah, I loved Hank Williams. I remember the, the day I heard Hank Williams had died. Um, yeah, all the Grand Ole Opry stuff. We used to listen to the Grand Ole Opry on Saturday night. And yeah. Later years when Elvis and the Beatles came along, all that stuff, Rolling Stones, everything, whatever was uh, interesting. And looking back, uh, songs that were well-crafted, yeah. I guess. Well, speaking of which, what can you tell us about the, the first song that you ever wrote? First song I ever wrote, I remember it. Nobody's ever heard it, and I'll, I'll do my best to make it remain that way. <laughs> but it, it was sort of a Jimmy Rogers feeling kind of a thing called Hobo Blues. Yeah. And uh, it was about a guy walking the railroad track, you know. And I, I don't remember much about it, but... Uh, I do remember that being the first song I ever wrote. Was that when you were a kid? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's when I was probably 12, maybe 11, yeah, yeah. 12. Now, growing up, you know, somewhat close to Nashville and, and listening to Hank Williams, listening to the Grand Ole Opry, I mean, were you aware uh, when you were growing up that um, Nashville was such an important music center, just not too far down the road from where you were? Oh, yes. Because I listened to the Grand Ole Opry, and uh, but you know it was like it may as well have been in Los Angeles because <laughs> we lived out in the country and we were very poor. We didn't have a car, you know, and uh, uh, I I never the first time I went to Nashville I was uh, uh, probably sixteen, seventeen years old. Wow! And uh, first time I went to the Opry was. Uh, a few years later, you know, I was probably 19 or 20, I guess. Wow, wow. First time I ever went to the Grand Ole Opry, I played on it. <laughs> wow. Tell us uh, tell us how that came about. Well, I had, uh, after I got out of high school in uh, 1965, I, I, my, my girlfriend uh, and her family had moved to Chicago, and I decided to go to Chicago and see her and I just I never came back hmm. and uh, I rode a train from Jackson Tennessee to Chicago and I got up there and uh, got me a job and I started playing in the band played in the club up there and uh, we, the club that I played in uh, they booked Nashville artists through you know on the weekends and uh, right. a guy named Bob Lumen who was a Grand Ole Opry performer sure. um, was one of the artists and uh, I ended up, uh, I, after a few years, I, I decided to move to Nashville. And uh, I, as it so happened, I just uh, I got to town the same day that Bob Lemon's bass player had quit. And, and I found out about that and made contact with him. And, and uh, he auditioned me and hired me to uh, play bass with him. And the first gig I played was the Grand Ole Opry. Wow, that's incredible. And that was the first time I'd ever been to the Opry. So yeah. I was very excited. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, Bob Lumen was kind of a, a rockabilly artist early on before he started having those country hits with Lonely Women Make Good Lovers and, and some of that stuff uh, in the 70s. So he had obviously done a lot in terms of, of his music career. Um, once you kind of got that first professional job you know now you're now you're legitimately in in the business you know you're you're playing with him what are some of the things that you learned 
um, working with Bob that sort of helped shape your um, career as a as a professional music person? Well, Bob was a um, he was like one of the best performers, showmen of of anybody in the history of the business. You know, yeah. uh, and he was a rocker. He was a he was a he was a rocker at heart. You know, he wanted he wanted uh, he wanted the band to play fast and loud, <laughs> and that was uh, that was that was a lot of fun. Most most country bands were a little bit quieter and you know a little bit less out on the edge than Bob liked it. But uh, Bob uh, had some incredible musicians pass through his band. James Burton, who went on to play with Elvis. Yeah. Uh, Joe Osborne, who became one of the uh, members of the Wrecking Crew out in L.A., uh, yeah. the recording band. Uh, Billy Sanford, who was uh, uh, one of the great Nashville session players. Uh, it's, it's kind of strange that uh, all those great musicians were attracted and and ended up going through the Bob Lumen School. You know? <laughs> right, right. That's and, interesting. Uh, I don't know, you know, I started writing songs while I was on the riding Bob's bus just really out of boredom, you know. Hmm. I was a I was a bass player and uh figured I figured that's what I was gonna be and Yeah. But, you know, just riding down the highway with nothing to do for you know, ten, twelve hours at a time. I started kinda of messing around with songwriting just just past time, really. Interesting. Well, in terms of being a working musician and sort of developing into a, a songwriter, uh, I understand that Mel Tillis played an important role in, in your development. Um, tell us how you got involved with Mel and, and how that part of your career unfolded. A guy that I had known in Chicago had gone to work at, at Mel Tillis's publishing company as a song plugger. Hmm. And uh, I ran into him one night, and we were drinking beer, and uh, and uh, I played him some of these songs I had written, and he he wanted me to give him a copy. Right. So um, I did. I gave him a, a tape of the demo session, and uh, and uh, he played some of those songs for Mel, and Mel liked them. And next thing I know, Mel Tillis is calling me on the phone, telling me he just recorded one of my songs. Wow. <laughs> and I thought somebody was pulling my leg. Right. And um, but he told me to. He said, "Get your ass down here to my office right now." It was about ten thirty at night, and uh, so I drove down to his office, and uh, there he was. Wow. wow. And uh, <laughs> he had recorded one of my songs, and we sat there until the sun came up playing that song. I bet we listened to it fifty times. And then the next day he was recording again, uh, doing one session. He did three songs, and all three of the songs he cut were songs off of my demo session. Wow. <laughs> so in a space of two days, I had four cuts by, by Mel, who two nights before had just won the CMA Entertainer of the Year. Well, that's that's what you call a break. <laughs> yeah, it was a break, and yeah. it does. You know, it got it made me think. Hey, this is one of the greatest songwriters ever. It just made me think that if if he thinks enough of these songs uh, to associate his name with them, then I, I need to pay attention. And yeah. I ended up working for Mel for thirteen years. 
in one capacity or another. I played in his band for some of that time, and but always was writing songs for him. Yeah, well, your your very first charting single as a songwriter actually became a, a Billboard number one. Uh, when Mel took your song I Believe in You to the top of the country charts in 1978. I believe in you. You you. You know, that song is, it's, it's kind of this, it's a lush ballad, and, and it really could have easily been a country hit or uh, a pop hit. And, and in fact, I, I believe Engelbert Humperdinck actually recorded uh, a version. And, and I'm curious, um, did you think of yourself in that era as someone who wanted to kind of expand the confines or the definitions of, of sort of what's considered country music and, and bring in some of these different type of elements? Not really, you know. Uh, I wrote that song with a guy named Gene Dunlap, who had been uh, the piano player back in the Bob Lumen band. Hmm. He and I were in that band together, and Gene had left and gone to work playing piano for Loretta Lynn, but uh, he and I continued to get together and jam, and uh, you know, and uh, we we were writing a few songs here and there, and we wrote we wrote, wrote that song together, and Gene was a very, very good uh, keyboard saxophone player. And uh, uh, we just kind of, we weren't trying to do anything when we wrote that song. We <laughs> right. just uh, were writing whatever, you know, I, I guess looking back, we were both a little progressive thinking, and I didn't realize it. Gene may have, but yeah. uh, uh, it's just, you know, that's just what we wrote that day. Yeah. Mel yeah. Love, when we wrote that song, Mel, who was real good friends with Glenn Campbell, uh, wanted Glenn to cut it, and he called Glenn up, and we sent it to him, and Glenn was on the fence. You know, he wanted us to maybe change some of the lyrics up. and Right. We we actually rewrote the thing about three times, and, <laughs> and uh, Glenn kept saying he might cut it, you know, and he never did, so finally Mel said, the heck with him, I'm going to cut it myself, and he ended up, <laughs> recording the the song in its original lyric. Right, right. Interesting. And, uh, uh, I was actually playing bass in Mel's band when all this happened with I Believe in You, so that was that was a lot of fun. I got to be out there um, in in the band every night while that song was a hit. Yeah. And it so it was a lot of fun. That's cool. Well, as we move into the 1980s, you know, we see your songs getting recorded by artists uh, such as Loretta Lynn, the Oak Ridge Boys, Joe Stampley, Alabama, Glenn Campbell, many others. You know, you're starting to see the, the songwriting career really pick up. Um, and a couple of guys that you wrote with frequently at that time were Jimmy Darrell and Dean Dillon. And, you know, Nashville is really uh, very much a, a co-writing town. Um, and what do you look for in a co-writer? Um, and how do you know when you've, when you've found a good match or stumbled on a, a good relationship with someone that you know is going to be uh, fruitful? Oh, you 
you know, I think uh, I think when you find somebody that uh, you can write with, and it's not a struggle when it just happens. You know, uh, hmm. I've had some writing appointments that were felt, you know, two hours felt like two years. <laughs> you know, and and you know, it's nothing nothing against the other person. It's just sometimes. You can, you can't communicate on the level that you have to 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 write a song, you know. And well, you know, in the case of Dean, I don't know. We just hit it off, you know. We became instant friends, and uh, yeah. we both loved the same kind of music. And and uh, Jimmy Darrell was one of the uh, he's Jimmy's still around, you know, and he's, he's retired. But uh, Jimmy had a knack for for. Uh, Somebody, you know, somebody brought a song in and it had something wrong with it. Right. Something's keeping it from being great. Jimmy had a a talent for being able to put his finger on the exact problem with the song. Huh. And and he, he knew how to fix them. Yeah. You know, he knew how to turn a almost great song into a great song. Yeah, that's that's something I, I think maybe. Uh, people don't always realize that there's the song writing and then there's the song editing, you know. Yeah, really make Jimmy it was the best I've ever seen. I mean, in all the years I've been doing this, I've never seen anybody who could go in there and it's like he had a microscope and could he could just see the, where the flaw was. Yeah, you know? and, yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know, it, it was, it was uh, very interesting. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, the artist with whom you had the most success in the 1980s was the great Vern Gosden. Um, he oh, took, yeah. He t took your song, uh, Dream of Me, to number seven on the Billboard chart in, in 1981, and then hit number one in 1988 with Set Em Up Joe, which you wrote with Vern and Dean Dillon and, and Hank Cochran. I'm gonna spend the night like every night before Playing E.T. and I'll play him some more I gotta have a shot of Talk about how that song came together. Oh, you know, uh, Vern had just gotten signed to uh, Columbia Records, and uh, I had been writing with Vern since uh, about uh, 81 when Vern had uh, recorded Dream of Me, which was my first um, uh, connection with Vern on the song. He he and I were neighbors. He lived about a quarter mile from me, and uh, we just we started getting together and writing. And you know, he he cut a few of my things uh, on the on the albums after Dream of Me. And uh, but but when he got signed to his deal at Columbia, um, Hank Cochran was pretty influential in making that happen. Right. Uh, Hank was plugged in pretty good over there. And um, so uh, when the deal was signed, uh, uh, Hank had a cabin up in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, which which he used for a songwriting hideout whenever <laughs> projects would come along. You know, so so uh, uh, when Vern was getting ready to start working on that album, um, he'd been writing some with Max D. Barnes and some other people, but Hank right. Hank suggested that that uh, Vern uh, 
myself and Dean Dillon take a take a week long weekend and go up to the cabin and see what we could come up with. Mm. And uh, so we did. We went up there and spent about three or four nights and uh, uh, we wrote set them up, Joe. You know, I don't know. It took us maybe forty five minutes, wow. maybe. You know, <laughs> it just kind of kind of fell out of the sky. Well, you had another number one with Vern the following year when I'm Still Crazy went to the top of the chart, and, and Vern was was also a writer on that one. Um, but in many cases, you, you've written songs where the artist is not also a writer. Um, and I'm curious if if you typically sit down to write a song with a particular artist in mind, or do you typically just kind of focus on the process of writing and then figure out later who might be the best person to pitch something to? Really, other than Vern... There's not many artists that I've written with, and here more recently I've been writing a lot with Willie Nelson. Right. And we've cut a few things, but but prior to that, Vern uh, was really the only artist that I've uh, written songs primarily for him to cut. You know, every, yeah. all the other stuff I've written has just been just writing a song. You know. And, sure decide who to pitch it to later. Well, you were back at number one again in 1990 when uh, George Strait topped the chart with I've Come to Expect It From You, another song that you wrote with Dean Dillon. How could you do what you've gone and done to me? I wouldn't treat a dog the way you treated me. But that's what I get. I've come to expect it from you. Back in those early days, I was a pretty heavy drinker, and uh, and uh, I liked to do some of the drugs and all that stuff. And I had, uh, uh, in 1989, I decided it was time for me to make a change right. in the way I was living. So I, I gave up all the alcohol and drugs and all that stuff, and... Uh, uh, I've Come to Expect It You was the first song that I wrote after I stopped, after I cleaned up. You huh. know? Interesting. And uh, I had gone out to Dean's house to, uh, to to try to write a song. You know, I, I was in that mental state where I don't know if I'm ever going to write another song. I've never written one when I wasn't high, you know? Right, right. So uh, I didn't know if, if I'd ever be able to do it again. And... We got out, me and Dean got the guitars out, and we're sitting there, and and for some reason, I, Dean always tells a story. He says that, that I was sitting there, and I said, the first word of this song is going to be so, hmm. and uh, that's what it is. Yeah. I don't know what that means, but uh, <laughs> probably nothing, but uh, he, he always tells a story and laughs. I guess I did say that. <laughs> I think I just said so. You know, like, so what the hell are we going to do, you know? <laughs> right, right. Well, at some point in there, you went to work at the Mercury label as an A&R director, and I understand that, that you signed several artists uh, when you were there, including Shania Twain, Billy Ray Cyrus, um, Sammy Kershaw, and some others. Um, and Sammy Kershaw was one who had a top ten hit in 1992 with your song, Anywhere But Here. You can send me north, send me south Just don't send me past my house Don't ask me where I'm going, cause I don't care I want a ticket that'll take me anywhere 
that case, however, you were not just the songwriter, but you were also the producer. And I'm curious to know how you um, began getting into production work, um, and, and that started to become an important part of your career as well. You know, in, all, in the years I worked for Mel Tillis, uh, Mel, Mel bought a, a building that housed the old Pete Drake recording studio, huh. uh, where Pete cut tons of B.J. Thomas and Ringo Starr and all kind of right. different records that Pete produced. But it, it was a working studio, and we had a bunch of songwriters, and I, I ended up being uh, the guy who uh, worked most on everybody else's demos. Hmm. So I, I got bit by the by the studio bug and being able to get in there and play a play a work tape of somebody's song and start start really almost building a record, you yeah. know. I, I just really, uh, once I got started doing that, it, uh, that, that's what I wanted to do. I still wanted to write, but I, I had a new uh, focus, getting in there with, uh, with musicians and working out an arrangement and uh, producing, a, you know, even if it was a demo, it was still producing. Yeah, sure. And I knew then that that's what I wanted to do. It was hard back then. It's still hard today for new producers. But I had to fight my way in. And uh, Sammy Kershaw was the first uh, project that uh, I was allowed to produce. And thankfully, we had a big, big album, a uh, bunch of hits off of it. And, yeah. And that was really the starting of my production career well i mean you had some some pretty serious success producing hits for sammy kershaw you know including number one singles like uh she don't know she's beautiful and, and cadillac style um and then another one that you produced was uh if you're gonna walk i'm gonna crawl a top 20 hit where you again were producer and the songwriter and i'm curious when you have that sort of dual role when you are an accomplished songwriter and a skilled producer how do you achieve the objectivity to know when to cut one of your own songs on a particular artist versus when to go with an outside song it's um you know a lot of people everybody does it differently you know and i've always been one who i've never pushed my songs on artists that i'm working with so. right um, like if I write a song and I think it it fits the project, and and I'm and I'm pitching the artist uh, material, I will hide my song in the middle of a bunch of. <laughs> if I'm playing seven or eight more songs, I'll stick mine in the middle somewhere. And, right. And you know if uh, if he likes it, fine. If he doesn't like it, fine. You know. But that's the only. I I just I never have been. Uh, been that guy who forces my own songs right in the right. project i remember back when i was plugging songs how mad i used to get when i would have a great song and it would get passed on and then when the record came out i would look at the credit and see that the producer or the producer's publishing company had all the slots right you know there's no room for for my great song, I didn't want to be that guy. Right, sure. Yeah, I didn't because I, I mean, I'm not that guy, and I didn't ever want to be him. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, you know, one of your most fruitful relationships has been with Kenny Chesney. You've produced, uh, I think, all his albums since 1997, which includes nearly two dozen number one country hits. Um, pretty amazing track record there. Uh, tell us how you first started working with Kenny and, and what you think it is about your chemistry that's allowed you guys to be so successful together for, you know, about 20 years now. Kenny actually came to me when he first got signed to Capricorn. Um, which was like, uh, I don't know, early 90s. Right. And uh, as he was loving what Nora Wilson and I were producing on uh, on uh, Sammy Kershaw. He loved the Kershaw records. And he wanted, he when he got signed, he came to me and asked me if Nora and I would do his, his album. And uh, I, I had to tell him that... Uh, the guy I was working for over at Mercury had had informed me that he didn't want me producing records, and he for sure didn't want me producing records for another label. <laughs> right. So I had when Kenny came to me the first time, I had to pass. You know, I told him I couldn't do it. Yeah. Because of uh, you know company stuff, and uh, so you know he Kenny uh, moved on and uh, got with Barry Beckett, and they made two records, I think, and then um, I decided, you know, I still, two years later, I still wasn't getting anywhere as, as a producer, and uh, other than the Kershaw stuff, and uh, I just decided that it was time for me to to leave the record company gig and see if, see what else was out there, right. you know, so I did that, and within a month after the word got out on the street that I had left mercury or polygram within a month i got a call from kenny's uh label and he had asked them to give me a call and see if i would be interested in producing them since i was no longer with the record company yeah and uh that was me and Nora wilson actually and, right. uh, and we we decided to do it and uh that was uh, 95, 96, something like that. Yeah. And, uh, and we've been going ever since. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Quite a track record. Um, well, another artist who has played a, a prominent role in your success is uh, George Strait. And we mentioned, you know, I've come to expect it from you, but George has recorded quite a few of your songs throughout his career, including Give It Away, which went to number one in 2006 and went on to be named Song of the Year at the ACM Awards. Just give it away There ain't nothing in this house worth fighting over Oh, and we're both tired of fighting anyway So just give it away Now that's a song that that you wrote with the legendary Bill Anderson, who kind of comes from the the previous generation of songwriters, and as well as Jamie Johnson, who represents a, a younger generation of writers. Um, and I'm curious how the three of you ended up getting together, and, and how that particular song unfolded in the writing process. Oh, uh, you know, I had uh, when Jamie first came to town, I uh, I had heard about him and. Uh, couple of friends of mine were talking about what a great, great voice he had, and his songs were so good, and I went out to see him, and 
uh, heard him play, and they were right. You know, he is uh, he is all that. You know, and uh, yeah. so he and I became friends, and uh, started writing some together. And uh, I, I produced a, an album on him for RCA, and uh, and you know we started writing together. And Bill and I have became friends. I don't know. Uh, I've, I've been a fan ever since. Uh, I can remember, you know, since yeah. he first moved to Nashville. But but uh, I, I, he and I got to be friends probably 15, 20 years ago, and and uh, we've written together a few times. But uh, I I wanted him to meet Jamie and uh, uh, get to know him, and and we we did that. We've written a few things together, and I don't know. This one day we just uh, Jamie was in the middle of uh, getting his divorce and. And uh, we got together over at my office, and and that's what the song's about, really. You know, mm. it's just uh, a conversation he had with his uh, soon-to-be ex-wife. Yeah. So, you know, it was, it, it was a pretty quick ride. We actually wrote the song one morning, and uh, Bill had his guitar player, called his guitar player, and uh, he came into my office where I had a Pro Tools system set up and uh, that afternoon we put down a, a little demo with uh, Bill's guitar player Les Singer uh, playing and we programmed a little drum pattern and I played bass and Jamie sing it and uh, uh, we made a CD copy and the next morning I saw uh, Irv Woolsey who's George Strait's manager right. his office was right across the street from mine I saw Irv getting out of his car and uh, I ran a, ran out the door and hollered at him and took a CD and handed it to him and uh, he said I'll send it to George and then he did that night and the next morning Irv called me up and said hey George wants to hold that song mm, nice so uh, within uh, about a three day period we had it on hold with George wow wow and George cut it pretty quickly after that you know and and obviously that's a record that was a big hit for you where you're the writer but not the producer and you know not necessarily thinking about that record in particular which is which is a, a great record but you know generally speaking when someone records your material and you're not producing um is it difficult for you to kind of take off that producer's hat when you hear an, an artist's cut of your songs i mean in other words i guess can you can you just simply enjoy it, or is there a part of you that kind of goes, I might have put a little less compression on that guitar solo, or I might have boosted the hi-hat a bit in that bridge. You know, is, is are you able to kind of separate those things in your mind? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'd rather hear, you know, uh, I mean, I, if you look at my, the records I've produced and the number, the percentage of songs that I, that I have written that are on those records, it's, uh -huh. I mean, it's virtually non-existent. Right. <laughs> you know, I have most of the songs I've had recorded have been by artists that I did not produce. Right. Right. And so it's all. I mean, I'm. I love when uh, uh, when I when somebody tells me that they they're getting ready to cut one of my songs. I, I you know, I want to hear what they what they hear. I want them to do their thing. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care. Uh, 
you know, I just like to hear their take on it. You know? Sure, sure. Yeah, so that's cool. You're able to kind of keep those, your production career and your songwriting career as these two separate but exciting streams of, of who you are as a as a musician and, and creator. That's That's cool. Let's talk about Willie Nelson for a moment. You had mentioned him earlier, and... Uh, you and Kenny Chesney produced his 2008 album, Moment of Forever, and you've since basically become Willie's go-to producer, helming at least his last uh, six studio albums, as well as the, the recent duo album with Merle Haggard, Django and Jimmy, which went to number one on the country album chart in 2015. Uh, how did you first get involved in working with Willie? Well, you know, uh, Willie has is always... Uh, making guest appearances on other people's records, you know. Uh, back then, before you knew all the people, you'd have to go through various channels to get get to him, get a message to him. and Yeah. And, but eventually, once you get to him, he would always say, yeah, hmm. you know. And so I ended up in the studio with him quite a few times uh, over the years, but, you know, not really getting to know him, you right. know. And because uh, you didn't get to spend enough time with him, because he, if he's going to do my song, he would have also at the same time he's doing mine, he would uh, have another six or eight people lined up waiting to sing on their song. So uh, um, there wasn't really enough time to get to know him. I've been a huge fan from the first time I ever heard him. You know, sure. I mean, he's like my strongest. Without a doubt, my strongest musical influence ever. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, uh, back about 2006, I guess, uh, I was working on a record with Kenny Chesney, and uh, we did a song, an old pop song called Lucky Old Son. Right. And uh, Kenny said, man, let's get Willie to sing on this. And so there we go. I, I chase, it, chase it down and <laughs> make all the phone calls and... Uh, Finally, get get in touch with Willie, and uh, you know they say, yeah, he'll do it. And so we set up a time, and Willie comes in, and uh, I tell him I'll send him a rough mix on it as soon as I get it done. So right. I got his email address and uh, sent him an MP3 of the rough mix on the song, and and he called me back, hmm. and uh, which freaked me out, you know. <laughs> right. When your hero. When you look down, your hero's uh, caller ID uh, is lighting up on your phone. It's uh, for the first time. Right, freaks you out. Sure. You know? So uh, anyway, uh, I answered the phone, and he said, "Hey, buddy," he said, "This is Willie." He said, "I love that cut." He said, "That's the best I've ever heard that song done." He said, "Find us some songs, and let's go make a record." Oh wow! So uh, you know, I was telling Kenny about it, and and and. Uh, he said, "Man, I want to, I want to do it too." I said, "All right." So I sent Willie a message back, or I talked to his manager or something. And anyway, we ended up Kenny and I doing the record together, which and it was a blast, man. We had so much fun. Yeah. And uh, and then you know, uh, I don't know. I worked with him on two or three other things here and there. And uh, one day he called me up and said, "Hey," he said, "Bring a band down to Austin. Let's." Uh, Let's record for three or four days and to see what we get. Wow. And so I did. I got some guys that uh, I thought would be a good fit and who would who 
would respect who Willie was, is, and will be, and uh, and we just had a blast, man. Uh-huh. Everybody had a great time, and that was uh, about six years ago, I guess. And right. I think I really think that I have I just finished working on it, either album number nine or number ten in that <laughs> period of time. Wow. Wow. And we started another one last week. Oh, wow. Man. So, it's just unbelievable. You know, I love the guy to death. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, you know, it's not uncommon for you and, and Willie to collaborate on songs for his albums. And, and like you said, that's kind of the one artist that you do uh, both produce and, and co-write with. Um and I'm I'm imagining that to have the opportunity to co-write with someone that was that is one of your heroes and, and such a big influence is is just pretty amazing. Um, talk about co-writing with Willie and and sort of the nuts and bolts of what is a, a typical Willie Nelson Buddy Cannon writing session like. Well, you're not going to believe this, but uh, we have never sat across the table from each other and written a song. Oh, really? Every song we've ever written, and we've written a bunch of them in the last three or four years, but we've written them all over text messaging. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah, it's crazy, man. I mean, he'll, uh, sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll get up in the morning and there'll be a text message from Willie on there and he will have written like a verse or a chorus or a verse and a chorus and it's like, uh, uh, I don't know, and, and the stuff that he writes and sends to me, it just trigger something in me and I'll just I'll spit out a verse or uh, a, whatever uh, a verse or a verse in a course I'll just it'll just come to me in yeah. three or four minutes and and I send it back to him and uh, we'll tweak on it a little bit and and he'll say let's uh, just come up with a little melody and we'll hum it over the phone and you can cut <laughs> me a track and and I'll record it. Wow, you know? that's amazing. So that's uh, that's the way we do, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, it's really a great way to do it because you don't sit there and say, "Oh, you know, have an idea in your head and say, well, I don't know if I need to say this or not. It might sound stupid.' Because you just you just say whatever you think, you know. Right. You know, obviously in Nashville, a, a big part of the culture is is people setting up appointments to get together and, and write with each other. And, you know, obviously what you're describing with Willie is a pretty unique, technologically based sort of approach to writing. And, and then, of course, you know, you're in the studio a lot because you're, you're very active as a producer. Um, is that model of setting up an appointment and getting together to write with someone something that um, you still make a part of your schedule as a songwriter, or is that something that is is changed for you over the years? No, I, I still do that. You know, it's a, uh, it's a. Uh, I don't enjoy it so much. You know, <laughs> maybe because I'm. You know, more often than not, it 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 doesn't end up with a great song. Sometimes it does, and that so that makes. It's an adventure, I guess. Yeah, right. you know, some days it's great. Some days it's very difficult, you know, yeah, yeah. and not fruitful. If it's difficult, it usually isn't fruitful. Right, right, sure. Um, well, last question for you, and I'll, I'll let you run, but um, 
if you had to pick one song that you've written, whether it's you know been a hit or or not been a hit, but if you had to to choose one song that you would say uh, you've written that you're most proud of, uh, what song do you think you'd pick and why? Oh gosh, that's a tough question. <laughs> but I've got a lot that that I think that are close to me. You know, I, the one that comes to mind is. Um, I, I was very close. I was raised up in the house with my grandma, and uh, I I wrote a song about her. It's called um, When I Was Young and Grandma Wasn't Old. Uh-huh. And that one always uh, uh, stands out to me. Yeah. You know? Actually, Willie cut the song. When I was young and grandma wasn't old When she guided me as I watched life unfold Anything we didn't have We didn't really need to hold When I was young Grandma wasn't old I found out just before I started this last series of uh, albums I've done with Willie um, when it, the time when he called me and wanted me to to bring the band down to Austin, um, I, I've got one of his autobi- one of his biographies, and uh, uh, read it, and and I found out that that he grew up in, I mean, he and I grew up almost in identical situations. Hmm. Uh, his his grandma raised him and his sister. Right. Uh, I lived in the house with my grandmother and my sisters. My mom also, but. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, Willie bought his first guitar with money he made picking cotton. Right. I bought my first guitar with money I made picking cotton. Huh. The parallels of our childhood are very, very similar. Right. So anyway, I was just I was, when I was reading that, I thought of this song I'd written about my grandma, and I just uh, got my computer and just shot him an MP3. Yeah. He was in Hawaii, actually. And uh, about 15 minutes after I sent it to him, he emailed me back and he said, I love it, let's cut it. <laughs> nice. And uh, so, you know, that song has a special meaning to me because it's so real, I guess. Sure, know? sure, yeah. Well, uh, buddy, I want to thank you for taking some time to uh to spend with us today and share some of the the stories of of your life and and career and you know we we thank you for for all the great songs too well thanks it's been fun thanks for listening we'd love to stay connected with you so please take a moment now to subscribe to songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com as a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. <laughs>